Hey folks, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are taking a break from our latest sermon series. Enjoy this standalone episode. Thanks for listening. I have two texts that we are going to be um, contemplating this evening. The first one from Isaiah chapter 56, beginning in verse 1. It says, This is what the Lord says Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord and to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The word of God for the people of God. 
So we have really botched up the order of sermons here. Um, last week, I gave a talk to college students, and next week is senior send-off. This week, we dedicate Jude, and I'm talking about eunuchs. I assure you that these are not related, um, although at the end of the service, we will have another memorial for Jude uh, in front of you. No? Too much? Okay. That was a, that was a joke. Didn't land. I'm just going to stick to the stuff on my paper here. As many of you know, I grew up in a very traditional Christian home, one that observed the well-established religious rhythms of weekly church attendance, routine Bible reading and prayer. And from time to time, I don't even know if you guys remember this, but from time to time, an attempt and consequent failure to engage in a time of family devotions around the kitchen table at some of our meals. Despite our lack of success on the ladder, the routines of my early life have made the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch a familiar one. I recall sermons that emphasized the spirit-led nature of the encounter between Philip and this important official. As the narrator makes plain in the book of Acts, it was the leading of the spirit that prompted Philip to travel south, or as other translations interpret the phrase, at noon, which if correct, would serve to highlight how unlikely the meeting between these two travelers would be. Most people were reticent to travel in the ancient world in the, the most um, devastating heat of the day. However we determine the meaning of this phrase, it is the Spirit who leads, and this pattern continues in the text. As the Spirit further specifies Philip's instructions, go to that chariot and stay near it. Because of Philip's placement, the two are able to discuss an important, if controversial and difficult text from the book of Isaiah, one that Philip actually does with so much skill and grace. His discussion ultimately leads, again, through the power of the Spirit to the eunuch's conversion. Finally, it was the Spirit, once again, who caused Philip to disappear suddenly as the eunuch emerged from the waters of baptism. For the group of Methodist-turned-non-denominational parishioners in the old country church in which I was reared, the role of the Holy Spirit was troubling and frightening territory. We did have a few people that when the Spirit moved, they would run circles around the building, and some of us sat there wondering what was going on, and Mom kind of put her hand on my leg and let me know that it was, we would make it through. Perhaps because of passages like this, our reluctance to give full control to the Spirit's leading was exacerbated by an irrational fear of being teletransported like Philip to some other community if we obeyed. I don't know if you caught that, but as the eunuch is coming up out of the waters, it says the Spirit just takes Philip somewhere else. This passage also introduces themes of sound biblical hermeneutics and its close corollary, the importance of reading the Bible in community. It talks about the beauty and some would argue the necessity or at least importance of baptism into the family of God. Indeed, on a surface reading of this passage, the power of the gospel is on full display. As is fitting within the narrative of the book of Acts, individuals and communities were being changed in powerful ways because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Ethiopian eunuch in this passage is certainly no exception to that pattern. Here we have a foreigner who, as we will soon see, was not allowed to enter the temple according to Jewish law. And this foreigner is being welcomed in as family. 
He is a religious seeker who, despite his connections with important people in his homeland, was held on the outskirts of Jewish culture and identity. His is an important story with much to teach us even today. I should pause here for a moment and tell you why I am talking about this. It has nothing to do with child dedication. I was asked to do pulpit supply for a friend of mine uh, at a little country Methodist church, and this is the passage from the lectionary. And it's not doing guest speakers or me right now any favors because of its, its difficult themes here, which we're going to head into right now. Despite my own familiarity with this passage, I don't recall a single teaching on the gender identity or ethnicity of the Ethiopian official and the theological significance of these characteristics when viewed from a canonical perspective. When we read Acts chapter 8 in light of the entire Bible, what are the things that are being promoted and what are the things that are being held out for us to observe? Perhaps these terms surrounding gender identity and ethnicity, politically charged as they are, warn us from engaging them. We live in a culture that is scared to talk about race. We live in a culture that is also scared to talk about other issues. On issues of just practicality and the observance of social mores alone, I would assume that very few of you here want to talk about emasculation. But sadly, we are not afforded that luxury in this moment. The issue serves as a linchpin of meaning for the entire narrative to see what is going on in this passage. To be fair to my predecessors, I too would like to stress the importance of the role of the Holy Spirit, not only in this passage, but in the book of Acts as a whole and more generally in the Christian life. And I know that under part of my leadership, this is maybe where our church has gone a bit astray because I do bring my own baggage of being scared to give control to the spirit and allow the spirit to move however or whatever that looks like. Similarly, good practices in how we read the biblical text and our identification with Christ and Christian baptism are notable themes that clearly emerge from this text and should be talked about with passion and grace. I believe as much as I am standing here in front of you that it is important how we treat the text and how we engage in a good reading of the text. I am also convinced that baptism is an important rite of Christian participation and entrance into the family of God, not something that allows us to um, be saved, but something that symbolizes the family that we have. But when this story is read in its larger context, the gender identity and ethnicity of the Ethiopian eunuch is of primary importance, for this passage brings to fruition a thread of inclusion that has been gaining momentum throughout the entire Bible. In order to understand this, we must do two things, and both of these things should be very, very, very familiar to us at this point. First, we need to discuss, albeit briefly, the identification and status of a eunuch in the ancient world. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? And second, we must go back to the Old Testament, to our roots, and find our theological bearings in the context of the ancient Near East. In other words, we have to explore the historical context of the Bible in order to understand what it is saying and what it is saying to us today. Regarding the meaning of the word eunuch, Megan DeFranza notes that it is an umbrella term in the ancient world, a word to cover a range of phenomenon wherein humans did not measure up to the male ideal. 
Jesus himself notes three different categories of eunuchs in Matthew chapter 19. He states, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Even in the ancient world, clear gender categories of male and female were called into question by Jesus' first use of the term eunuch. Some were apparently born with ambiguous or poorly formed genitalia. These are words that I never thought that I would say with half of my family present in the room uh, this evening, but what can you do? According to DeFranza, these naturally born eunuchs were called eunuchs of the sun in Jewish culture because they were discovered to be so when the sun shone upon them. As an aside, this is not a phenomenon that is limited to the ancient world. This is something that continues on today. The term that we have adopted is intersex. And numbers fluctuate depending on how the term intersex is used, but a safe range is anywhere from 0.02 to 1.7% of all births exhibit some of these characteristics. The scope of the third category, eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, is difficult to determine. It may refer to non-married or celibate individuals, or it may refer to some like Origen, the early church father who castrated himself in an attempt to take Jesus literally. That is, to go to the extreme for the sake of the kingdom. It is really interesting and highly ironic. Origen is known as the father of allegorical interpretation. Origen is known as the one who does not read the Bible literally, but looks for the, the significant theological meanings underneath of the surface, except apparently when it involves him castrating himself, which he takes that text very, very seriously. I thought that would be funny, but it's, it's not. We're going to move on here. It's the second category of eunuchs outlined here that is perhaps the most well-known to us, those who have been made eunuchs by forced castration in order to serve wealthy families and governments and empires in an official capacity. You might think of the story of Esther where she is brought into the king's harem and put under the control of a eunuch named Haggai. DeFranza writes, eunuchs handled everything from power, administrative functions, and military command to cup-bearing and guarding the intimate spaces of their masters and mistresses. They were um, trusted with this because they lacked uh, the ability to perform sexually in some cases. They are cut off from their families of origin. They're raised to see the family of their masters as their own. Eunuchs owed their entire identity, she writes, complete loyalty to their masters. Their inability to procreate barred them from claiming power in their own name and also from producing heirs who might challenge the dynastic authority of the sacred king or emperor. Their gender ambiguity also enabled them to mediate between men and women. They were, as one scholar notes, the perfect servants. But for all their strengths in servanthood, they were the other in society and certainly in religious life. The Israelite law code specifies this in texts like Deuteronomy chapter 23 when it says, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. A different translation of the same text puts it even more clearly. No man whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off can belong to the Lord's assembly. I have in my notes here, in all caps, stick with me, and three exclamation points. You know how sometimes you get knee deep into something and you start doubting yourself? That happened a long time ago, just so that you know, okay? 
But stick with me because this text is going somewhere and this story has massive theological implications for our community today. And if I scared you off early on when I started spouting things like gender identity and ethnicity, put that in the back of your mind for a second because here what we are seeing is in this story the inclusion of one who does not fit, even according to Jewish law does not fit and has no access at all to the worship space of these people. Okay, it's important for us to see that. One scholar concludes that eunuchs were exiles from the society of the human race, belonging neither to one sex nor the other. In order for us to understand the full import of the leading of the spirit and the experience of the waters of baptism for the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight, this displacement must be discussed and to whatever degree we are able, it must be appreciated. John Golden Gay writes, in their maimedness, Eunuchs fell short of human wholeness that was God's ideal, and in their incapacity to beget children, they could make no contribution to the future of God's people, but God welcomes them. Acts 8 is not just about the oddity of the Spirit's power. It is not just about teletransportation. It is not just about running around the room during corporate worship. It is not just about reading the Old Testament well and reading in community and practicing good hermeneutics, fancy term. It is not just another conversion story in a book that is admittedly filled with beautiful and powerful stories of individuals and communities transformation. No, God is doing something new in this passage, something that was potentially unfathomable for a Jewish audience, even though it was announced in the radically inclusive vision of the book of Isaiah. Now you guys know I love Isaiah. And it's time that we get a bit nerdy here for a second as we talk about the book of Isaiah. For well over a century, and despite what the introduction of the book says, critical scholars have read the book of Isaiah not as a unified composition of the words of Isaiah ben Amos. Say Isaiah ben Amos. He's an eighth century prophet. They do not believe that this is a composition that was written by him, but on the basis of distinct vocabulary, style, and context, they have identified three distinct sections in this book. We can break them down for you. Chapters one through 39, which seems to be set in the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Say Neo-Assyrian Empire. I won't make you repeat everything, but just to keep you honest, these people were military experts that were known for their siege engines. They would build ramps up to the walls of cities, and it was like a battering ram that would just begin to destroy city walls. People understood and knew that they were going to come into their towns and decimate them, which led Isaiah ben Amos in the 8th century to say, guys, we need to get our act together. If these people are on the warpath and they're going to come in and destroy us, then we must we must pray. We must trust that Yahweh will take care of us. We must repent. We must be a people who are engaged in the ancient practices of our religion. Chapters 1 through 39 
is moving uh, the history of Israel and Judah in a certain direction, and we know that it did not yield good results. Israel was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire near the end of the 8th century, and while Judah managed to hang on for a little while longer, their fate would not fare much better in the long run. We transition to Isaiah 40 through 55. Seemingly a different context. One that if you have seen Handel's Messiah or ever heard me talk about Isaiah chapter 40, you know where I'm going to go. Comfort, comfort ye my people, comfort. Nobody's seen Handel's Messiah, come on. That was a good rendition. It's a different context where now destruction is not on the periphery. Destruction has happened. Israel in the north has been destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 or so BC, and much, much, much later, Judah has been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire in 586. This text is about 150 years or so after the context in Isaiah 1 through 39, and it is up to the prophet to speak to these people in exile, people that have been taken out of the promised land the land that God had, had sworn to this people, but because of their sin and their recalcitrance, they had been removed from the land, and now they find themselves in foreign territory, looking around and saying to each other, what in the world are we doing? Does God even love us anymore? Comfort! <laughs> Comfort ye! Yes, he does, but the prophet is having to um, convince these people. There's all sorts of dialogues where the folks uh, would say things like, how can we trust? How can we believe? And these beautiful pathos-laden texts where Yahweh is saying, I will not leave you. And we move again to Isaiah 56 through 66, the third and final section of the book, where now the people are not just in exile wondering if Yahweh is still with them, but they're back in the land. This is probably in the 520s or so. They've, they've come back because Persia takes care of business with regard to Babylon, and they don't care if the Judahites are in Babylon anymore. Obviously, they send them home, and they look around, and they see all the destruction that has taken place they remember the words of the prophet that said everything is going to be okay, and they say, what now? They begin the hard work of rebuilding. The relevant text that we're going to explore is what is called a seam text. It actually begins this third and final section of the book of Isaiah. Many would say that the author or perhaps authors of this section, they have an awareness of the first 55 chapters. They have an awareness of the history. They have an awareness of what has happened. They have an awareness of the people's doubt towards God. John Golden Gay writes, the first eight verses of chapter 56, the seam text, it presents Yahweh's vision for an open community and put the combined message of chapters one through 55 into a nutshell. It says this, Yahweh is responsible for doing right by Israel, but Israel is responsible for the rightness of its own life. The passage begins, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right. Literally, it says, keep mishpat, say mishpat. Fancy Hebrew term there. It means justice. Keep justice and do righteousness is what the Lord is saying to these people. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be 
revealed. Interestingly, in this passage, maintaining justice and doing what is right is characterized by two things, Sabbath observance and welcoming foreigners and eunuchs into the community if they keep the Sabbath. This is interesting because earlier in the book of Isaiah, both of these ethical actions, Sabbath observance and welcoming the foreigner are viewed negatively. In chapter one, verse 13, the Lord is said to detest Israel's Sabbath observance. Even more than that, he says, your feasts, your songs, your prayers, they disgust me. I am so tired of all of your rituals and all of the things that you do because your lives do not mirror the things that you are doing with regularity. In other words, you sing your songs, you observe these festivals, you raise your hands in worship, but when you leave the house of God, you are an unjust people that doesn't care about anybody Else. It is as if you are using your worship to be in my good graces, but your life doesn't look like you follow me at all. In chapter two, the community is also called out for associating with foreigners. And Isaiah is not the only one to address this intermingling. In fact, the instructions to disassociate with foreigners have other well-established Old Testament roots. For example, in the midst of his reform, Ezra is instructed by a guy named Shechaniah that the people should put away their foreign wives. He says, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. If your wife and your family is not Israelite, get them out. The book of Nehemiah says something similar. Uh, Nehemiah claims in the very last chapter of the book, moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And just a side note, remember where Ruth is from? Moab, okay, pause there for a moment and return. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. But the prophetic word that is found in Isaiah 56, it suggests something much different. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from this people and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. God is doing a new thing. As one scholar suggests, Yahweh is abrogating, fancy term there, for doing away with the requirements of the Torah. Another scholar, Walter Brueggemann, states the case even more strikingly. The visionary act of this poet radically and deliberately flies in the face of the old Torah provision. Foreigners and eunuchs, once held at bay, are now welcomed in. 
For these people groups, their very grounded, very real concerns that they would be excluded. They have been heard by God, but they have been rejected by God. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple. The people who were not allowed access within the temple are now being given something that is beautiful by God within the temple and its walls. They will be given a memorial and a name, Yad Vashem. They will be given a memorial and a name. In the ancient culture, a name, your name was everything. And the way that this was passed on was through your offspring. Eunuchs were not able to be there, to, to go through that. But now God is saying, I will give you something that is better than sons and daughters. I will give you an everlasting name that will endure forever. To be sure, the text does not indicate free admittance. The eunuch must keep Sabbath and do what pleases Yahweh and hold fast to the covenant. But when they do, they will receive this memorial and a name an everlasting name that will endure forever. It's interesting that the Holocaust Museum in Israel is called Yad Vashem, a monument and a name. The stress in this passage is on what Yahweh will do. Two times in the passage it states, I will give to them. But there is also an implicit demand on the people to welcome them in. No doubt this would have gone beyond normal practice in their religious community. Brueggemann notes, the community of Judaism is to be a community that remembers, that cherishes and preserves the name and identity of those otherwise nullified in an uncaring world. The text continues and has a similar claim for foreigners. It says, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to the covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. There's a trajectory in the Bible towards inclusion. Third, Isaiah argues and reverses the teaching in earlier chapters of the book. It also takes on Deuteronomy, and to some degree, it takes on Ezra and Nehemiah. There's a trajectory, in other words, in which the old Torah is abrogated or denied or done away with, and this is all brought to fulfillment in the book of Acts, which provides us with a powerful example of a foreigner, of a eunuch, who is accepted and welcomed in, not because of his social status, not because of the people that he knew, not despite his ethnicity, not despite his gender, but because the spirit of the living God was working in and through him. To the one who has been excluded for his entire life, perhaps without any say in the matter, a welcome is received. To the one who has lived his entire life as the other, a monument and a name is given. Imagine the scene for a moment of this seeker who goes to Jerusalem to see the worship that can't get close to it but wonders what it's all about and now being given full access through Philip to become part of the family who experiences the cleansing waters of baptism to become part of God's family. The text concludes in Isaiah, the sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel 
says, I will gather still others to them besides those who are already gathered. Brueggemann says this of the passage, Yahweh is an exile ender who intends homecoming for all peoples, a homecoming to Torah, to community, to communion with Yahweh. The oracle here is a remarkable assurance in that ancient world of displaced persons. So I'm guest speaking at a small Methodist church in Allen, Maryland this morning and bringing this to 20 or so people well older than me. And I'm doing the same here tonight. In one fell swoop, this passage introduces to us an ethnic and gender and perhaps even a sexual minority who becomes an emblem of inclusion in God's family. This alone is worth our consideration. Within our context and our community, in the American church that might not want to step out and to have difficult conversations surrounding race, surrounding the other, what we see in this passage is something that should challenge us to be like Philip and to preach the gospel wherever and whenever and however. But I also know that this text might not necessarily resonate with most of us in that very specific manner, but I also know that there are others in this room who have felt excluded. There are others of you who have felt as though God does not want you, will not have you, cannot use you, does not want you to be part of this family because of what you did last night or last week or what was spoken over you as a child or what happened to you as a child. You feel as though this is something where you kind of have to stay at, at, at an arm's length because God doesn't want you because you're so fill in the blank. In this passage, the most unlikely of persons is brought into the family of God to experience transformation that can only happen through Jesus. Perhaps there are some even in this very room who at one point or another in their life felt as though God doesn't want you. Perhaps we need to be reminded this day that God welcomes you. Now, I do want to pause here and say the same thing that I said this morning. People in my age demographic are often put into a category where we just preach this God loves everybody regardless sort of message. And I want to say that in this passage, what we see here is an Ethiopian eunuch who is wanting to follow after Jesus. What we see in the book of Isaiah are people, foreigners and eunuchs who are observing the Sabbath and trying to make Yahweh pleased and holding fast to the covenant. And we can pause there for a moment and say, once we have entered into the family of God, are we living in a way that looks anything like that? Or are we just banking on the unending love of God and not changing or transforming or wanting to follow after him. So this passage is a strange one, and may we consider the striking oddity of it this evening. The move of the Spirit, the transformation that takes place through Jesus, the introduction of someone on the outskirts and the margins brought in to the family of God. And just before we even move on, I want to make this clear yet again. When we talk about those on the margins and the outskirts, we are not discluding ourselves from that. Paul says that we were once children of wrath destined for destruction. Let us not forget how we too have been brought into this family. Let us not 
forget that. May we consider our own inclusion into the family of God this evening, and may we seek to include the displaced in our community, whoever and wherever they might be. Indeed, through the perfect and victorious work of Jesus Christ, Yahweh is an exile ender, and he is welcoming you home today, wherever you have been, whatever you have done. These texts are overturning the way that we think and process And what we see is a God who wants us to be near to him, a God who has made room for us at the table, but not to remain as we are, but to become more and more like his son each and every day. May that inspire us this evening to leave here and not to be the people that Isaiah demonstrates. It's not about the singing and the rites and the rituals, but it's about our lives of justice that go along with the songs that we sing and the hands that we raise. May we be a people that live for Jesus. And darn it, if that isn't appropriate for my son, I do not know what is. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.